your shining faces once more. Uh, I know that everybody goes on vacation in the summer, but I miss y'all. When some of you are not here, it's like, oh, I haven't seen that person or that person in a while. Oh, they're on vacation. And I'm glad you guys can get away and, and have relaxation and rest. But I'm also glad for the season of ministry to come back around again. Uh, we've got a lot of exciting things starting up this fall. Uh, I've got my new members class uh, getting started here in a few weeks. In uh, just a couple of weeks, uh, well, a week from Monday is VBS. And we anticipate having several dozen kids in for that to um, hear about Jesus and to learn the word and to be able to share the gospel with them and hopefully see many of them come to faith in Christ for the first time, which is going to be an exciting thing. Uh, we've got Awana coming up. We've got our new small group ministry uh, kicking off soon. All of our small group leaders are excited and on board with that. And we hope that you will join that as well. We're hoping to um, increase the amount of participation in our small group ministry by about 35 people. So if you're wondering if that includes you, the answer to that question is yes, uh, it does. Uh, we would love to have you be part of our small group ministry if you're not already. We've got some new groups starting up, including uh, the fact that I will be leading one again, which would be a lot of fun. And so if you want to be in the group with the guy who writes the questions, uh, you can do that. Okay, uh, but what we'll have is an opportunity to be in, uh, in some groups together and to study God's Word together and to pray together in a deep way about issues related to things going on in your life. We'll try some new things with that, um, putting together guidelines on how that would work. But the idea is, is that we will meet for 11 weeks in the fall. Uh, we will meet every week starting September the 8th and wrap up November the 17th. And then we would start up again just after first of the, first of the year and go until Palm Sunday. And uh, that'll give you about 15 weeks in the, in this, in the uh, winter and spring to be together, and then you have the summer off, you have the uh, Thanksgiving and Christmas and New Year's holidays off, so you have some breaks built in, works out to about 26 meetings, which depending on your small group now, maybe only is another two or three beyond what you're already doing, but it's on a different schedule, so that there are breaks that are built in, and so that uh, the level of depth of relationship can be built more quickly, because you are seeing each other more often. It uh, doesn't mean you have to come to every meeting or that there will be public shaming if you don't go uh, on one particular week or anything like that, but it does make it more likely that you'll be able to come more often and that you won't forget. Is it small group this week? Oh, I forgot. No, it's small group every week. Uh, and it gives us opportunity to um, build deep relationships with one another, deepen our relationships with God, and makes it easy also to invite other people into our groups who maybe haven't uh, connected with a group yet by simply saying this, hey, you ought to come to my small group. When does it meet? Well, it meets every week, but it's meeting tonight. And what are we studying? Well, were you there for the sermon this morning? No, I wasn't there. Well, great. We've put it online. The notes are online. Uh, come tonight. And, and listen to the sermon this afternoon, and you'll be prepared. Or come Friday. I know we've got a group that's going to start meeting on Friday nights, if that works better for you. Or there'll be other groups that meet at other times. My group will probably meet Sunday afternoon, right after church, uh, which is a great time to meet, because then you eat together, and you study together, and you pray together, and it's fun. And it, you ought to join one. Uh, we really encourage you to do that. August the 4th will be the kickoff for those. We'll have all the sign-up sheets and uh, information available for you. I'm going to try and put together a brochure this week to give everybody. We may even mail it to your house so you have no excuse not to have this information uh, as to what we're going to be doing and how it would work and what it would look like. So we're very excited about this. This is something that we think um, will really encourage your spiritual growth and development as well as um, help to unify us as a body as we're all looking at the same thing together 
even if you're in a different group, you're looking at the same thing uh, as everybody else and uh, help to bond us together as a body and, and as groups and, and, uh, and with the Lord, most importantly. So uh, if you have questions about that, see me, see uh, Brother Mark Swanson back there. Uh, we are pumped up about this. We really are. And, um, and if you want to get excited with us, we would be excited about that, too. I uh, want to turn now our attention to 1 Corinthians. Uh, we've got several more weeks in 1 Corinthians. Um, then we'll take a little break, and then we'll go into 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians, I think, is the least preached book in the New Testament because uh, after you make it all the way through 1 Corinthians, nobody wants to go back for a second helping. But nonetheless, uh, all Scripture is inspired by God, and there's lots of good stuff in 2 Corinthians, uh, and we're going to look at it uh, coming up later this fall after we've done a, a couple of other things. But as you're making your way to 1 Corinthians, I want you to, to this is as much exercise as you'll have to get today, I promise. Raise your hand if you have ever started a new exercise program. You've ever done this. Now, how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand. You only had to exercise on the first question. How many of you, having started a new exercise program, were profoundly sore afterward? Yeah, me for sure. Um, I remember uh, several years ago, I first started seriously lifting weights. And then I started seriously running again after about a 20-year hiatus. And when I began to do that, I was so sore that I could not move for the first week. And I hurt in places I did not know I had places. Anyone familiar with this phenomenon, right? Where you move, you try to, you try to adapt yourself to a new way of getting out of bed in the morning, where you kind of, you know, ease along, right? Uh, it's painful. And, and if you've ever had that experience, you have to get past it by continuing to exercise. And it's, by the way, one of the things that if you are on an exercise program, keeps you going because you don't want to do that again, right? You don't want to stop and then have to go through all the pain and suffering of readapting your body back to that. And by the way, it's also the thing which keeps a lot of people from starting. You know, tomorrow is always the favorite day to start an exercise program, right? Right? In fact, I saw a t-shirt, Nike put it out, it says, you said tomorrow yesterday. <laughs> right? Just do it, right? And, and the, the idea is, is that they don't want to start the program because they don't want the pain and the, the soreness that goes along with it. And the reason that that happens biologically is it has to do with your muscles. Uh, Cassidy, you'll have to correct me if I get this wrong here. She's the exercise science guru here. But biologically, it has to do with your, with your muscles burning lactic acid rather than oxygen because your body is not adapted to the exercise. But basically it's this, that you are using your muscles in ways that they are not used to being used, and you may even be using muscles that you are not used to using. Because on a day-to-day -day basis, a lot of the stuff that we need to do doesn't require a lot of our muscles. Our major muscle groups get us through the day pretty well. And so all of a sudden you start to do sit-ups and you go, Ooh, I forgot about those. I forgot I had those. You know, if you look at me sideways, so did you. Um, but in any case, um, you, your, your major muscle groups get you through the day, and you don't use a lot of these. And then you all of a sudden need to do some new task, and all of a sudden you're sore because those muscles haven't been used in a while. And if you want to sum it up, the Corinthian Christians and their problem as it relates to spiritual gifts is this, that they have treated one gift, the gift of tongues, as if it's the solitary gift that is worth having, and it's also the sign that the Holy Spirit is present in a person's life in the first place. So in other words, oh, you don't speak in tongues? Oh, well, 
Yeah, there's room in the church for the less spiritual too. Okay, yeah. They're like, I had a girl, by the way, in high school who tried to convince me of that. That because I had never spoken in tongues that I was not saved. Or that if I was saved, it was simply by the skin of my teeth. And that I needed to speak in tongues along with her. And uh, she, her father was, an, was a, uh, a Pentecostal pastor, and she took me to him to fix me. And uh, because she was, they were convinced that there was something wrong with my body and with my spiritual life. Um, but from, a, from an exercise standpoint, th- these Corinthian Christians are like the guy who goes to the gym just to work on his biceps. You ever seen that guy? He's got massive guns, but they go right along with his uh, bird legs, his flabby pecs, his pudgy stomach, his weak shoulders, and his back. At, you know, he can't pick anything up, but man, he's got huge arms. And, and he brags to everybody who will listen about how in shape he is. And the fact is, he's not in shape. What he has got is a lot of what they call show muscle. It's all for show. It's all, it's all on public display. Look here, you know, welcome to the gun show, right? Um, but ha- does that happen in the church too? Sure it does. And it happens not just with foolish young men, but it happens with foolish Christians in the body of Christ. And it's not just foolish, it's also unhealthy, it's also unbiblical, and it's also prideful. Because it denigrates as unimportant and unnecessary the very parts of the body that allow the functioning of the whole thing. And an unhealthy, unbiblical pride is what Paul is addressing as it relates to tongues and as it relates to chapter 12, chapter 13, and chapter 14. uh, Three chapters in which he addresses this issue of spiritual gifts. So if you got your Bible, and I hope you have it open to chapter 12, uh, we don't want to be a church of show muscle. We want to be a church that fully functions with every part of the body being in use. And we want to look at that. So uh, look at Paul here, beginning in verse 12. Uh, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all of the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slave or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. Now this is Paul's big clue that he is going to use an analogy or a metaphor to describe a spiritual reality. He's drawing an analogy to the body that we have, and he says, look, if you look at your body, you've got all kinds of parts. You've got fingers, you've got toes, you've got eyes, you've got ears, you've got that uvula thing that hangs down in the back of your throat, you've got a pancreas, you've got kidneys, you've got um, 624 skeletal muscles, of which there are 52 just in your face. You've got an average of 206 bones. Uh, You've got 11 organ systems operated by somewhere between 75 and 100 trillion cells, depending on how big a boy you are. And the body has all of these parts at the macro and the micro level, and all of them function from the smallest cell to the largest organ. They all exist as part of one unified whole. And this, there's a fundamental unity that ties all of that marvelous diversity together and rules over it By following the directions that are given by what? By your head. And in parallel fashion, the body of Christ operates the same way. That God's spirit brings each of us individually into the body of Christ at salvation. And we are, to Paul's terms, baptized uh, by the spirit into the body. So, in other words, that's a... Spirit baptism is a term for conversion. That as you put your trust in Christ, that in a sense you are drenched by the Holy Spirit. You are dunked in the Holy Spirit. That He comes into your life. 
and you, po- and you possess him within you as an indwelling presence for the remainder of your existence on into eternity. You are indwelt by and controlled by the Holy Spirit. And from that moment on, you are also united by the Spirit into the body of Christ. And so you retain your individuality. I mean, look around. We are not all the same. Amen? We are not all the same. We are individuals, and yet we are from that moment on part of a unified whole. And that unity gives each of us parts a meaning and a function, and we come in on equal terms. Amen? It isn't like some of us were in the head of the line and some of us, uh, you know, picked last and, you know, God had different methods. You know, well, for the elite, I'll go by Jesus. You know, for the rest of you all, we'll just kind of sort at random. No. We all come in because we are individually selected by God's Holy Spirit to be part of the body of Christ. In all of our diversity, we are all selected by God to be part of the body of Christ. In other words, and also because it is His choice, we don't have anything to brag about, do we? Because it isn't as if God looked down through the corridors of time, saw you in all your glorious, wonderful specialness, and thought, man, that's somebody great. Sinner destined for hell, but I've got to have that one. Uh, No. What he did was he said, that person is a sinner destined for hell, and I love him. I love her, and I want him, and I want her in my kingdom. And it isn't based on us. It's based on his grace and based on his love and his sovereign choice. And Paul uses in these two verses the primary division in the church of that day of Jews and Gentiles, and then also a second division, slaves and free people. If you think that there are problems in terms of the cultural divide between groups of people within the church, generally, or maybe even within our church, wait until you get a load of Jews and Gentiles. Jews and Gentiles did not think the same way, they did not dress the same way, they did not marry the same way, they didn't eat the same way, they didn't have the same cultural background from the word go. So on the one hand, you've got people who will not eat lobster and others who think that the only way it is good is with lots of butter. And you've got one group of people who won't eat pork and another, another group of people who are having a bacon cheeseburger in the same church. And some of them at one time worshipped pagan gods and some of them condemned and and regarded as blasphemers those who did that and you've got them all together and god brought them all together is paul's point into one unity both jews and gentiles both slaves and free people now there's a division and by way of application we might look at our culture and go okay also rich and poor Black, white, Hispanic, Asian, Eastern, Western, Southern, Northern, European, African, majority world, first world, Islander, mainlander, whatever division you want, God has picked people from all over the planet of all social classes, of all races, of all levels of intelligence and gifting and put them all into this thing called the church and made them all part of the body. And we all belong to Christ, and that one central truth gives meaning and function and purpose to all of the individuality within it, that we all belong to Christ. I don't know if you've ever been to a foreign country. I've gotten the privilege, as I've been in ministry, to be in several on missions trips and whatnot. And one of the things that is amazing to me is that you can be in Singapore, you can be in Indonesia, you can be in Mozambique or South Africa or Slovakia or Vienna or London or Vladivostok or you know Timbuktu or wherever you are, and you meet Christians there, 
And it is like, my brother, my sister, it's my brother from another mother right here, right? Why? Because we are united in Christ. And you may have nothing in common with these people culturally or linguistically or socioeconomically or whatever, but when you meet them, you throw your arms around them and embrace them because they are your brother and your sister. They are part of the body, and you recognize them as family, and you love them immediately, and you want to see them again. Someday I'm getting back to Indonesia. I'm going to see my brothers and sisters there. And we all became brothers and sisters and members of the same body by the same way, by drinking in the same truths taught by the Spirit. So no man, no woman ever reasons his way to faith in Jesus. They don't go, you know, let's see. So the Scripture promised a Messiah, and a Messiah came, and the guy did miracles and was raised from the dead. He must, be, he must be the Messiah. Now, it's not that you can't come to a conclusion, but the fact that you come to the conclusion that He is your Messiah is something that only happens by the Spirit. And the Spirit saves that person, and He gives them, in Paul's terms, the Spirit to drink. And when the Spirit is taken into that person's body, He changes them just like taking in a glass of water all of a sudden it's like where did it go well it diffused throughout the entire person and the spirit comes into the person's life and changes them completely but that only happens by the spirit and then paul's going to go on here um he says for the body does not consist of one member but of many and if the foot should say because i'm not a hand i do not belong to the body that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? And as it is, there are many parts Yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And on our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, beginning in verse 14, what Paul is doing here is he is giving encouragement to those who are inclined to think that, spiritually speaking, they got picked last for the team. And he is reminding them that even though they may feel like their gift isn't as important as someone else's or as good as someone else's, that their gift is important and good as well. Notice, Paul does not have the foot say, well, I wish I was a hand. And I think the reason is, is that I think the person who thinks he is a foot already assumes, well, I'm at the bottom, so I'm inferior to everybody. I must not really be part of what's going on. And then the same is true about ears versus eyes. He's like, well, you know, they're kind of outside and they kind of mine kind of stick out and have floppy earlobes and uh, that can't be good. I must not be part of the body. And he says, no. Feet are necessary to the body. Amen. Are they necessary? Can't get much of anywhere without them. Or at least it's really, really challenging. And ears are just important as important as eyes. How many of you would give up both of your ears for one extra eye? <laughs> Not many of us, right? I didn't get any takers on that. 
Or maybe it's just an aversion to exercise. I don't know. But, um, but not many of us do that. Why? Because my ears are important. I want them. to. I, I need them to be able to hear. They are goofy looking, but they are mine. And I need them. Otherwise, I'm severely handicapped. Amen? And if I have no feet, I am severely handicapped. And I need those parts of the body to be there and to function. And if everything were the same part, all there are some very important functions that would go missing. And if everything is gone, you know, if everything is an ear, there's no sense of smell, and then I don't get to taste anything. That's no good. Who wants to go through life like that? Um Without eyes, you can't see, that's true. But without ears, you can't hear, and that's no good either. Now look at verse 18. Paul says that God had a purpose in all of this diversity. There is a, a fundamental unity of the body, but there's diversity within it too. That he has arranged them, look at the verse here, verse 18. God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. In other words, that he didn't just fling spiritual gifts at the church at random and then whoever happened to be standing in the right spot got the best ones. That God individually planned and purposed for each person for the gift that they would have. It isn't like God, you know, is up there like a guy with a helicopter full of money, you know, dumping it out, and then if you're under the right spot in the cyclone, you can pick up a bunch. That's not it at all. It's that God had a, a loving plan and a loving purpose, and he sovereignly assigns and arranges the body as he wants it to be. Why? Because if he let us pick, there'd be a lot of things that would go missing. And he loves us. And sometimes what you see actually is that in the church today. If you look around and you go to various churches, um, what you see is maybe a church that loves teaching but doesn't evangelize or serve anybody or show mercy. Or some adore serving the poor, but they never share the gospel with them. And some emphasize missions across the world, but forget about across the street. And that's not how it should be, because the body of Christ needs every part to function and everybody's gift to be present and useful. Because if some of the parts of the body are missing, then the church is handicapped by the absence. Amen? God created many parts to function as one body of Christ. Now, in the next paragraph here, verse, beginning verse 21... He turns his focus to those who think they are superior. Look at the text uh, with me here. He says, The eye can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again to the head to the feet, I have no need of you. Um, the eyes are chosen and the head is chosen because those are two of the parts that we protect and, um, and instinctively shield most. You play sports, what do you put on? Generally speaking, a helmet. Why? Protect your head. Uh, when somebody throws something at you that you're not expecting, what do you do? You shut your eyes. Or maybe flinch or bend the rest of your body around. Why? Because you're trying to protect your eyes. And there are those who think of themselves, within the Corinthian church, there are those who think of themselves as the head and the eyes. In other words, I tell you right now, I'm the elite. And these people, the rest of these people, you know, the dregs of society, we can do without them. Because after all, I mean, we've got eyes and head, we've got everything we need. Right? Ever been to like Walter Reed or something and seen some of those displays like they do in biology? Remember being there as an eighth grader? went to the Walter Reed Museum there around D.C., and they had, like, disembodied legs 
and arms and stuff floating in formaldehyde. Freaked me out, traumatized me for weeks afterwards. Um, it's not designed to be that way. Detached from the body, it's just creepy. Like you remember, you know, like, what was that? The thing that ran through that Munster's house, right? The disembodied hand? That was weird. And, and it's no less weird when people who are in the body of Christ are all one thing and they don't think they need anything else. And the fact is, I mean, Paul's setting out here in this paragraph to correct them. There are, he says, look, there are some parts of the body that aren't obvious and that appear to be, quote, weaker because they're not on public view. And so he talks about, he talks about our, uh, he talks about two kinds of parts. He talks about uh, parts of the body that seem to be weaker, they're indispensable, and our unpresentable parts. Now, um, on the one hand, I think he is talking about internal organs, brains, hearts, pancreases, stomachs, esophagus, um, circulatory systems, lungs, you know, these kinds of things. Things that are not outside, that are not on public view in any way, but the fact is, is that without any of them, you are severely handicapped and in some cases dead. And nobody wants to part with any of them if they can help it. I had my gallbladder out a few years ago, and it was not a fun experience that I would like to repeat. Uh, you don't want to do that. You don't want to be missing anything if you can absolutely avoid it. And on top of that, we have unpresentable parts. That's Paul's euphemism for the external organs we keep covered by our clothes at all times. And without those, we can't live very well either. They contain some important systems that we need to function. And if they don't function, guess what? You also will die. If your excretory system does not function, you die. Because you have no way of getting rid of all of the waste that your body produces. And, and so we, but we nevertheless protect those special parts and we cover them up with clothes. Why? Because we need them and we, in, in that way, by covering them with clothes, we treat them with greater honor. Now you think about it. We dress part of our body and we don't dress other parts. Why? Because part of our parts are for public consumption and some of them are not. And so we keep our unpresentable parts and some of our other important parts covered and we adorn them and give them honor. And the idea is, is that Jesus Christ has ordered the body. And by grace, he's given some people very public gifts. And other people have less public roles, or even roles that may be completely in the background. You know, for example, let's say you have the gift of mercy, and so therefore you are a counselor, and you talk to a lot of people and help them, uh, you lead them back to Jesus as you are pointing them to the scriptures and dealing with the issues that they have. Now, if you are a good counselor, none of that is ever on public view. You don't say, well, you know, I talked to Rick Rossetto, and he said he had this problem. <laughs> okay. Uh, you know, I'm using Rick as an example because he's a safe person, but, but, here, but you don't do that. Your, your gifts are not on public display, and yet they're important. Amen? Um, do you benefit people if you have that gift? Absolutely. Your gift may be with finance. It's unseen by a lot of people, but it's not unimportant, is it? Without financially gifted people, as an example, this place doesn't function. We, can't, we don't get the bills paid. We can't, we can't 
do ministry real effectively because we can't spend any. Um, and we need people with those kinds of gifts. Dave, by the way, does a wonderful job. And if you see him, thank him. As does Eric. Eric does a magnificent job. And if you see him today, thank him. Uh, these people do not have upfront public gifts, but that without them, the body of Christ is significantly handicapped. And it may even, by the way, and I've seen this, churches that are missing some significant gifts, guess what happens to them? They're either very handicapped or they can even die because they are in need of some gifts. Um, and in the same way that we honor some of our special parts with clothing, we ought to honor in the same way, Paul's point is, the non-public gifts as well as the public ones. In fact, if you look at verses 25 and 26, Paul makes the point that our unity in the midst of all our diverse gifts ought to be such that when one person is honored, Everybody shares in it. And when one part is hurting, everybody ought to hurt along with them. Let me give you an example of what, the, what I mean, by, what he means by that. Um, uh, if you've ever had a, a back rub, a really good one, you know, not where somebody's like hurting you, but where they're really relaxing those muscles, what happens? Everything in your body just goes, Right? Right? And it's just your back that they're touching. But boy, it feels so good. Or when Karen will sit on the couch and rub my scalp. I'm like, oh yeah, that feels great. Right? And my whole body relaxes and feels great. Just one part of my body that's being honored, but boy, that's spectacular. Right? And on, this, on the other hand, if you get a paper cut on your thumb, you turn into the biggest wimp ever. You're like, mm, 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 you know, or, you know, you bash something with a rock or whatever, you know, you, every part of your body responds and moves to that little finger that you've turned black, you know. Um, you know, why is that? Because in the body, when one part rejoices, all of you rejoices. And when one part suffers, everything else suffers along with you. And Paul's point is this, is that when you see somebody else's gift functioning well, you ought to rejoice in that person. You know, like as an example, when I didn't get to participate in Awana this last year. I was involved with the youth ministry, which was important and needed leadership. And I'm so thankful for Stephen uh, providing leadership in that because uh, now I get to go back to Awana. But one of the things that brings just joy to my heart is watching all those people serving. And they're serving with the kids and they're serving with music and they're serving with all those little award things that you got to poke in those little holes. I don't know. That would drive me insane. On the second night of doing that, I would stick myself in the eye with a fork. Okay? But we have people who are, who are great at that, who are gifted in that. And I praise God for those people. And I praise God for each one of you who serves with your gift. Because all of your gifts are important. You know, every week there's a group of people out here who get together the muffins and the donuts and the uh, granola bars and the water and make all the coffee. And they do that without anybody a lot of times saying, boy, this is fantastic. I love this. This is great. Thank you for serving. It's a very, in some sense, behind-the-scenes kind of a job. And yet, how many of us enjoy it? And when that part of the body is honored, we ought to enjoy that, right? We ought not, in, um, by contrast, become jealous. Well, well, I can't believe they let that person do that. I mean, I'm for all, I'm available. And what were they thinking? I'm better qualified. You know, I mean, and, and it's not just, by the way, it's not just church people who do that. It's pastors who do that too. 
When they get together at conferences and meet one another, they say the first question out of their mouth after what is your name is, where do you serve and how big is your church? Now that's, that's lame. In the extreme. You know why? It's because God put that guy wherever he is. And on top of that, God gave the guy whatever gifts he has. And so it's not a reflection on you. Grow up. And let God honor this person over here and you over there and you over here and you over there doing what God is calling you to do. And not to look at, well, I sure wish I was a pancreas. I mean, there's a lot more glamour in pancreas than there is in small intestine, you know. Without either one of them, the body dies. And we need everybody to function. We need everybody to function. And God has put it together so that every gift, so that we ought to be a unified thing. And our unity in Christ ought to unify us together so that we are neither envious when somebody else is honored, nor depressed when we're not the recipient of it. And on top of that, when somebody else is hurting, we've got some hurting people in our congregation. And one of the things that that encourages me about y'all as your spiritual maturity is continuing to grow is that when people are hurting here, what do we all do? We do just like a guy who smashes his thumb. We gather around them and we give honor to them and we encourage them and we pray with them and for them and we love on them and we hug them and we say, is there anything I can do? Let me bring you a meal. Let me go to your house. Let me help you. That's what's supposed to happen when you're part of the unity of the body, right? Now, move on here. Um, And finally, Paul, here in his last few verses, he gets right down to the point. And he starts correcting those who think their gift of tongues ought to enable them to look down on everybody else. And so this is verse 27 through uh, verse 31. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets or all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the higher gifts. And I will show you a more excellent way. Now, um, Paul is reminding here the Corinthians that tongues is not the most important gift. Now, they all think that it is because it's public and it's miraculous, and it enables somebody to essentially kind of a giant spotlight on their head and go, everybody look at me. Aren't I spiritual? Uh, and so for the second time in this chapter, he's going to list, uh, give a list of spiritual gifts, and he's going to list tongues specifically last and those things related to it. And what he's going to say, if you want to categorize spiritual gifts in terms of, in terms of um, their significance, first one is the apostles. Without the apostles and also with them the prophets, the church does not exist. The church comes into existence through the preaching of the apostles and the prophets. The church at Antioch lists Barnabas and Saul as prophets and teachers of the word there. Now, now, Paul at least, and maybe Barnabas also, were also counted as apostles, but they're, they are prophets of the word. They are those who, um, as with the apostles, were able to speak authoritatively the word of God. If you look at the scriptures, we have uh, 12, 13 letters of Paul in our New Testament. Uh, Luke is the longest writer in the New Testament. Luke and Acts outstrip Paul in terms of volume of verses. Uh, these, are, these are the writings that are prophetically given in the New Testament church. 
that God speaks by his Holy Spirit into that person through them so that the words are theirs, but they are also his, that they are God-breathed. That's the function of the prophet. function of the apostle is to found churches and to, and to appoint elders and to function in authoritatively giving the word and founding the church. Without them, the church does not exist. And then after them are teachers. Uh, and these are the folks who continue to minister the word after the church is founded. Again, without them, the church does not continue. And after them, there's kind of an assortment. You've got miracles and healing and helping and administrating and then various kinds of tongues. And Paul's point, as you look at it, what you see is you see miraculous gifts intermixed with very ordinary gifts. I'd love to have the gift of healing. I think that would be fantastic. To be able to walk into a hospital ward and just start cleaning the place out, going door to door. And we would have a revival break loose down at Methodist. Might even be some administrators get saved around that one. Okay, I would love to do that. I don't have that gift. And I, I'm not sure I know anybody who does. But that is the kind of thing that people who had that gift or had it at that time were able to do. But you've also got non-miraculous things like helping, which is just a word that means all kinds of assisting with all kinds of stuff. It's a very general junk drawer kind of a category. Uh, you've got administrating. Administrating actually is a term that's used for what the helmsman of a ship does. That this is the person who is the, the guide who keeps you off the reef and out into the water and, and in, into safe harbor and this kind of thing. It's the person who's a lead, who is a leader and a guide over the course of the bigger thing. That's a non-miraculous gift. But is it important? Absolutely. You have to have that. Uh, you've, got, um, you've got miracles. In other words, things like the ability to raise the dead. That's fantastic. The ability to turn water into wine. The ability to heal lepers. These kinds of things like Elijah did. Like Jesus did like a few of the apostles did at a few times over the course of their ministry. Some people, at least then, had those gifts. Uh, I'm open to the idea they might be around today, although I've never seen them. But this is a total reversal of the order of the, wor of the, of the world around Paul at the time he's writing. Because he writes... And elsewhere to the Corinthians, he says, you know, we apostles are regarded like, like condemned men, like guys brought in for, to be slaughtered in the arena, brought in last of all in the procession behind Christ. And yet, they are first in importance in the church. And common, seemingly non-miraculous gifts are interspersed with very obvious, showy, miraculous ones. And gifts that build up the body as a whole are elevated over gifts that simply elevate one individual within it. And so he continues to correct them by asking a series of rhetorical questions, which I should have pointed my high school friend to. Because each of these questions has the implied answer, no. Not all are apostles, not all teach, not all work miracles, not everyone is a prophet, not everyone heals, not everyone speaks in tongues or interprets tongues. He says, earnestly desire the higher gifts, which I take him to be saying, have a desire, if you have a desire for to see a gift function, desire for the gifts that build up the whole body to function. The gifts of apostle, the gift of prophet, the gift of teacher, these things that build up and encourage the whole body. These are the higher gifts. You want a hierarchy or you have to have one. But there is a way that everybody can participate. That is 
absolutely critical. And that if you don't do it this way, the whole thing falls apart. And that's the way of love. And that is our challenge for next week, is what, we're, what does it mean to use your gifts in love? Now, I'm over time. I know that. But let me just conclude with a couple of things. That number one, we need to continue. We need to continue to love each other so much that, when, that we hurt together and we also rejoice together. That when somebody's suffering, we hurt right along with them. That can be hard to do. But love is what connects the whole body together. Love is what brought us into the body. Love is what forms the relationships between the members of the body. And we need to love one another as part of the body of Christ. Such that when we hurt together and we rejoice together. Something good happens, we're excited for that person. Something terrible happens, we suffer with that person. Because we love them. And we need to honor each other's gifts. Just because somebody's particular gift doesn't seem important to you doesn't mean it's not important to God. And we need to honor and encourage each other in the use of their gifts. You know, the person who needs, who watches your kids in the nursery needs a pat on the back and a hug. They do. I've been in there before. Warfare in there, okay? They need, a, they need encouragement. They need to know that diffusing that explosion is an important ministry of our church. And it is. It's important. And God looks down at that and he says that anyone who gives a cup of cold water in my name will not fail to receive his reward. Anyone who welcomes a little child. What do you think that means? Diffusing the blowout counts. welcomes a little child in my name, will have a reward. These are important gifts. And we need to honor one another's gift and encourage each other. And last, you've got to celebrate your gift by putting it to use. You've got to celebrate your gift by putting it to use. If it is true that every gift is important, then you are hurting the rest of us if you sit up. And you are hurting the body of Christ. Now, that's not to lay a guilt trip on you. It is to say, you are important. You are valuable. You are valued by this congregation and needed. And whatever we can do to help you, the function is what we need to do. We need you. And we love you. Let's pray. God, our Heavenly Father, may it never be true of us that we look down our noses as if somehow the gift that we have has something to do with us instead of everything to do with Jesus. Father, may we honor the gifts that you have scattered widely and given and entrusted to each person within the body of Christ. May they be both used to your glory And may they be encouraged in their use. Father, may we come around each person and tell them how valuable they are. How important their functioning and their role in the body of Christ is to the rest of us. Because without them, Father, we are handicapped and dying. Father, We know that you have given us these things graciously and in love and according to your sovereign plan. Father, I pray your plan would be fulfilled in us. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.